And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Erica Hayasaki. Erica Hayasaki is an assistant professor in the literary journalism department at the University of California, Irvine, and an award-winning former national correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Her nonfiction narrative book, The Death Class, A True Story About Life, is forthcoming in January 2014 from Simon & Schuster. Please give a very warm welcome to Erica Hayasaki. Well, welcome everybody. So excited to be here with the wonderful Debbie Allen. Thank you. Thank you. She is one of the busiest women uh, in the business. I, 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 her list of accomplishments go on and on and on. But uh, just to start, she's a, a graduate of Howard University. Um, oh, ate you in the house. Okay. <laughs> She's regarded as one of the most relevant and sought-after directors in Hollywood and in theater. She has a long list of directing and producing credits for film and television, including the Oscar-nominated Steven Spielberg epic, uh, Amistad, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Her critically acclaimed Broadway directorial debut, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, went on to win the Oliver Award in London. She's been a... She's been a producer, director of the television series uh, Different World, which is one of my favorites. Mm. Um, of course, many of you know her as Lydia Grant from Fame. Uh, she's won Emmys and has also appeared in Roots. Um, she plays Catherine Avery on... <laughs> I'm just watching The Bounce. Okay, I'm just watching The She Bounce. currently plays Catherine Avery on Grey's Anatomy. Yes. Uh, another one of my favorites. Bought the hospital. <laughs> um, she's been awarded an honorary doctorate from the North Carolina School of Arts, as well as from Howard University. And in recent years, she's been a judge and mentor on So You Think You Can Dance. And she's in... Last but not least, an artist in residence at the Kennedy Center for over 15 years. And as a true devotee of arts and education for young people, she's worked tirelessly to engage, enlighten, inspire, and touch young people around the world through art, dance, and theater. And and in 2001, she founded the Debbie Allen Dance Academy in Los Angeles. So we're very lucky to have her here today. Thank you. So I wanted to start out and talk. I know that you're going to Brisbane. In, yes, Australia. Uh, Australia next week, and you have a big show coming up. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Because that's bringing mm. Los Angeles students and dancers and Fully. issues. Okay. Uh, so uh, I've been creating theater, as you said, at the Kennedy Center for over 15 years. We've done some remarkable performances. Uh, I did a piece called Old Mano Man which I was given the task to narrow the gulf between Muslim and Christian culture in a dance-driven piece. I mean, thank you, Jesus, that was really one. Um, (laughs) Hell of a task, and it was amazing to take young people from America to the Middle East and to really see what that culture was like. And we played the Kennedy Center, and it was great. Um, So I've done many things. I mean, I adapted... Snow White into Pearl, about a young girl with the whitest teeth, the side of the Mississippi. Um, <laughs> so I've done a lot of wonderful, interesting things, and they've all been very family-oriented. But since the day I moved to L.A., which was to join the cast of Fame, 
I didn't know I was going to stay here that long. <laughs> that Laker guy got me stuck shouting. <laughs> <from him. laughs> Just low rent, honey, low rent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a deep laugh. Uh, <laughs> but since I got off the bus here and uh, lived in Los Angeles, I've just been terrorized and emotionally ravaged daily when I read and hear about young people killed on the streets, gun violence between one another, mistaken identity with the police or with the police or whatever, young babies in strollers. Um, it's just like a shock. It's been like a shock to my whole person that those senseless acts, that senseless loss of young life or life period from the policeman to the kids, all of that. So I met a man named Noel Staunton many years ago probably over 10 years ago. And we started talking about the idea of creating something that would address this. So we talked about it, but then it didn't happen. Agents and lawyers got in the way, honey, child, please. It's better just to do it in church, honey, and then you get it done. You know, they just... Anyway, it got very involved. It didn't happen. Then he became the artistic director of the Brisbane Festival in Australia. And... Um, I was doing Twist, an adaptation of Oliver Twist, now set in America. Oh, you saw it. That was really nice. Hey, how you doing, girl? What's um, He flew to see me in Atlanta and said, Debbie, do you think you want to get this out? I'm like, absolutely, let's do it. So I worked on this project, and I named it Freeze Frame. Freeze Frame. That was something I woke up with. I've learned that in those early, quiet, waking moments, mm -hmm. some of the most creative ideas can really come to you when there's no phone ringing and no one's asking for the car keys. You can actually hear yourself thinking, or maybe those great ancestral voices, of those angels, whoever it is that talks to us, that we get our creativity from, they can flow. So I thought of freeze frame because the whole idea of stopping the action. How can we stop some of this action, take a good look at the picture, and see where are we in this freeze-framed image? So freeze-frame is a dance-driven narrative, if you will. I can't just say it's a musical, because it's different. Mm -hmm. It's a dance-driven narrative with a cinematic component. I just used all my creativity and just put it all into this, where it starts out with a movie where there is a young man in a blue shirt who kills and robs a storekeeper, and then the police investigation starts, and then that spills onto the stage and dance, and then there's a party going on in the neighborhood over in Lamert Park, and there's another kid in a blue shirt. It has nothing to do with this horrible act, but he's wearing a blue shirt, and he's black, they're both black. And so the policemen hunting this guy down, as they should, but they lose sight of the criminal and they clock their eye on the mm -hmm. innocent boy. And they burst into this scene of teenagers poised to shoot him down. And it stops. The action stops. And then we go back and we learn about all these various kids. Who's in this neighborhood? Who are they? What are, the, what are their lives like? 
And it, it addresses their challenges with religion and education and drugs and gangs and violence and creativity and art. You know, what are the things that can pull them out of this abyss? Um, so we go in and we find out who they are. Then we come back, we rewind. The action happens all over again and then the horrible act happens and a young a kid is killed unnecessarily mistaken, you know, just because of this mistaken identity, this terrible thing happens. And um, it's the kind of piece that entertains, it's fantastic dancing, great music, it's even very funny. But at the end of the day, theater is to make you think and feel and somehow a lens through which you can maybe calibrate your life and where you're fitting in the world and maybe see something or I think that's the goal of the arts, yeah. which is why they're so important to our young people. So we'll be doing it in Australia. There are tickets available. <laughs> Get on the plane. Come and see us. We're the centerpiece of this, Amer this amazing uh, world international festival that will have theater pieces and operas from all over the world, dance companies, and Freeze Frame right from Los Angeles is a centerpiece. And we're just hoping that we'll have a producer from America mm -hmm. that can write a check and say, come on, let's <laughs> go and do it in Chicago. Let's go to New York. Let's go. Because this is what needs to happen. Yeah, bringing some of these L.A. stories, which are so common in the, the headlines. L.A. story is such the story. Everyone wants to be like us. I've, you said I was the cultural ambassador. Well, I yeah. went all over the world, and everywhere they're dressing like our kids. In China, <laughs> I thought they were going to be walking around in those little coats <laughs> and all the biceps. Child, please, they're walking around like this. <laughs> and got the tattoos <laughs> and the sagging pants. I was like, what in the hell? What the hell? <laughs> And I said, you know, we have a cultural identity mm -hmm. as Americans, our young people, that hip-hop culture has permeated the world like the Ebola virus. You <laughs> cannot stop it, so why stop it? Let's use it. And it can help us get into the minds and into the hearts and to connect with people all over the world. So... Right. Yeah, your dance academy, um, I know that that was a dream for you. So, yeah. And it's done so much for L.A., but youth all over and dancers all over uh, have come yeah. to study with you. Can you talk about the inspiration for that and, and, um, and, and what, why it's so important, especially now? Well, there's a couple of inspirations for this school. Um, when I was a young girl growing up in Texas... All I wanted to do was dance, but I wasn't allowed to go to the premier ballet school because I was black. And they said, you know, black people don't do ballet. I'm like, oh, really? Why not? You know, I saw the pictures. I wanted to wear that costume. I wanted to get up on my toes. And so my mom moved to Mexico City mm -hmm. when I was nine. And there I could train and dance and went to the Bellius Artists and saw those Diego Rivera murals. And that was such a striking impression for a young girl. Mm -hmm. But by the time I got back to Texas, where I grew up in Houston, civil rights movement changed mm -hmm. a lot of things. And I was the first black student and dancer at the Houston Ballet Foundation, which is now a world-renowned academy, mm -hmm. one of the best schools in ballet in our country. People may not know it. It's not, it may not be ABT. It's in Houston. 
Child, they got so much money in Texas. You know, they can afford <laughs> everything. Honey, those studios, my God. <laughs> anyway, so the experience of growing up in racially totally divided America, where you're a kid that sees white-only water fountain, white-only restaurants. You're not allowed to go even, you know, to the park. But on June 19th, that's when we could go. Mm-hmm. I'm from that world. And um, when I went to Mexico, there were no boundaries. I remember my sister Felicia Rashad and I went to Woolworths. The first time we went in Woolworths and sat at the counter and we were looking with our eyes like, what's going to happen? And we were like, hamburger. And the, man, the man was like, Ándale, 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 ándale. You know, telling me to talk up. I'm like, hamburger. Oh, hamburguesa, okay. How many? Two, dos, okay, dos. Two hamburger. Honey, we sat there. You would have thought we were at the Ritz in London. <laughs> no, it's true, because all of a sudden, there was no racial divide. There were no barriers. We were at Woolworths, and it was like the most amazing thing in life, hamburgers and french fries. And it was in Mexico City, where they didn't speak our language. And they embraced and welcomed us. And so, real back forward, so I was first dancing in Houston Ballet Foundation when I got there. And then when I went to North Carolina School of the Arts, I didn't get in there because they didn't want me there either. You know, again, the man told me I wasn't right for dance. I should do something else, my body. You know, that boon of black power, you know, I don't know. <laughs> But I realized that, you know, young people, it's that beginning. This is the time when you need to fuel and seed them and give them access. The word is access. There's always going to be an uneven divide in terms of economics and all that, but access. So fast forward, moved to L.A., and my daughter Vivian, beautiful dancer, I sent her away to the Kirov. I had to send her way over there. And then, you know, I, she called one day, finally. I felt like I was a bad mother because she didn't cry when she left. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> she missed me. <laughs> Finally, she called home and she said, I, I want to come home. I'm like, yes, we start school. So it was between Vivian and also everywhere I went in the world with fame. Everyone said, where's your school, Miss Allen? Where's your school? Or when I was choreographing the Oscars, I did the Oscars 10 times. Mm -hmm. And I was doing choreography that was just out of my head and body from so many places. And I remember creating a, a, a dance piece for JFK. And it was all based on those rhythms. And it was fantastic rhythm. Dun, 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 dun. And it was Dunham technique. And so I'm with the best dancers you can find in LA. And I have 20 dancers, and they don't even know what the Dunham technique is. They don't know who Catherine Dunham is. Mm -hmm. So I had to stop and teach class. And so I realized, you know, there is a void. People are learning technique and tricks, but they are not getting that substance. So I started Dada, Debbie Allen Dance Academy, when, um, and my dear friend Rick Carter, the mm -hmm. great, great artist and production designer who uh, has won Academy Awards for Avatar and recently Lincoln, but who is an incredible artist, painter, just amazing. 
when we finished Amistad together, he's like, Debbie, what are you waiting for? I'm like, I don't know. He said, well, what are you doing? I'm like, okay, I'm doing it. That's it. <laughs> and so I was challenged by a cross-section of things. And I started the school, and I didn't have any 501 status. I didn't have any money. I spent my own savings. My husband was throwing up. <laughs> I had kids lined up around the block. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing at the end of one year to see these beautiful kids. And this has become another purpose in my life. It's really exciting to have a purpose in your life. It's great to do great things, be accomplished, be appreciated. But when you have a purpose, when you have a little Taina, Miss Allen, Miss Allen, look at me. And oh my God, I just weep. I could cry right now because it, they need it. And somebody's got to do it. And so I started this academy, and I've had such great, great support. And it's never enough, but I get, you know, Wallace Annenberg should run for president, I think. She should be our next president. (laughs) Because someone who really understands the cultural landscape and how to partner with people and say, here, support people that have great ideas and push and try to raise, you know, in the science and the arts. There's a reason they say the arts and the science arts and sciences, they go together. Mm-hmm. You know, Leonardo da Vinci, hello? I mean, <laughs> do we have to go any further than that? And it's especially important, um, we were talking backstage about uh, the lack of arts education in schools now, and the NEA says 40% of schools, high schools now don't require arts for graduation. And of course, the access for students who are from low-income backgrounds is much, much worse. So, I mean, your school is great because you're opening up to students. I know you offer scholarships, yeah. um, but that's one school. How, what are your thoughts about this epidemic? Well, you know, when I was uh, working, it was actually under President Bush in the arts, um, when I was the cultural ambassador for dance, and I would go to the White House and I actually sat there with Laura Bush, between her and the NEA, head of the NEA and head of education, And I said, you know, No Child Left Behind is a good idea, but mm, it's lacking a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I said, you're not making the arts important. Mm -hmm. It's the first thing that gets cut. There's no balanced education here. That is the constitutional right of all our children to get that equal access. You know, they're talking about left brain, right brain. You have to have both sides of your brain. You know, that... Steve Jobs' book, if you haven't read it, you should read it. He was running away from math class, going to dance class. (laughs) I mean, it's why he was so creative. Young people are not getting that. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was in line with all the mothers downtown screaming and ready to throw things when they announced they're taking the arts out of K through Mm 6 here in Los Angeles, the entertainment capital of the world. Are we just idiots here? (laughs) Who in the hell, what do we have to do? Who do we have to shake in the parking lot? <laughs> Something has to happen. It's just not good enough. You know, we wonder why we have all these problems. You know, if we could make everybody take a dance class, I could, end, I could bring world peace, honey. <laughs> I could bring world peace. Child. To the bar. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> It's, it's, very, it's a very tough conversation that we can't really address in this little short period of time, but it's something that everybody has to jump in, you know, um, 
and it has it has to be grassroots because you know the federal government only funds what ten eight or nine percent of the public school yeah and the rest of it is private or raised mm -hmm. so we have to take over our schools we need a we need a gang we need the real gang the parents <laughs> gang we need the most violent gang in the country <laughs> and that's the mommy gang I know because honey we'll knock you out <laughs> you mess with our kids honey those Charles Gorillas and the Misses, lightweight. We will go there. We need that. And we have to do it for all the kids. You see, we can't just do it for our own kids. When the libraries got burned down during Rodney King, mm -hmm. my children were at Crossroads. Mm -hmm. They live in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. We still went to the library because many times there were books that we didn't have. So now you burn down, they're talking about burning down a gas station or a Target or Walmart or whatever they were talking about, but nobody was talking about those libraries. I took it very personally because my mother's a writer and I grew up with books. Books was my self-defense as a kid. Looking at those books, reading those books, projecting myself into the story, understanding that that is a world that I could get into. And so they had this commission for, they invited all of us, me and Denzel, everybody, come and be on a panel, tell the people to go home and stay home. So I'm standing up there with Denzel Washington, Wesley Snipes, all kinds of people. And I said, we got to do something about the library. They say, huh? I said, okay, come on, just follow my lead. I said, okay. <laughs> so I said, okay, we want you to go home. But you know what we need? We need all you people here today to donate money, to restore these libraries. And I'm going to commit the first $10,000. My husband was throwing up again. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I mean, I can't help myself. So those libraries, you can't. You know, the greatest tragedy in the ancient time was burning the Egyptian libraries. That was the greatest travesty in the world. What we lost, we're still trying to recover and find. So child, I got dead. They all donated money. Honey, Harrison Ford sent me a check. Honey, I love him. <laughs> we rebuilt those libraries, but that's still just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Not enough. So I know this conversation is bouncing all over like a <laughs> microwave, honey. I know it. But that's where it takes you. It's but where it takes you. They, you know, students who have access to arts, um, studies have also shown many of them, you know, do better in school sometimes. And, oh, really? Um, I'm real. sure from your own uh, experience with young people, are there stories of people that have transformed their lives oh. through your... Oh, through yes. dance, through your yeah, because at the at Dada, and I would say it started out maybe 40 or 50 percent of the kids were in scholarship, 40 percent. Now mm -hmm. it's more like 70. And I won't mm -hmm. give them a scholarship if they don't have a B average. Mm -hmm. They have to do. I want the full thing. I'm developing the full human being. It's not enough to just kickball change. You've got to have something in your brain that is speaking. And so it's important. I was always an A and B student. The only F I ever got was in Mexico because they were smarter than us. That, when they put me in the class there, it was way beyond my class in America. Honey. That math kicked my butt out. Mm. But they have to have a B average. So I remember one of our most talented dancers. He moved here from Texas. We got a family to take him in because we don't have living dorms and stuff like that. 
They got them in Houston, though, honey. I'm telling them they got money in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Brandon, his grades were bad. I said, sweetheart, you're going to get back. You, you, we're going to send you back home on a bus. No. Miss Allen, just give me a semester. I said, I'll give you one semester. His grades transformed from D, F, to B, C, mm -hmm. to A, B. Wow. And this is something that is just, it's a statistic. If you have arts in school, they do better. Mm -hmm. Because if you, they want to be in school. Attendance improves. Mm -hmm. They all, you know, any schools, most of the schools that have arts, they have like 80% going to college. It's just the numbers don't lie. Mm -hmm. And so if we have more arts, it would improve them. And so I was trying to get that across to Mrs. Bush at that dinner at the White House that night. Mm -hmm. I'd come in from India. I was wearing that bendy. Mm -hmm. President Bush said, Deborah's been in India with that dot on her head. <laughs> Representing America. I tried not to like him, but he was a sweet man, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> what? <laughs> it was... <laughs> Texas but I tried to tell, I know, everybody from Texas was in there. No, if you, you just had to be from Texas, he would appoint you to something. That's it. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. But I tried to tell them that night, sitting there in between them, that if we got more arts in public schools, why can't you, with a flick of your pen, take no child left behind and put the arts right up there? Mm. Why can't you? Why can't you? What is wrong? Why can't you? Because it's the first thing that's cut. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, you, you have a sense of social justice and education that runs through a lot of your work. Mm. Um, we talked a little bit about Amistad mm. and how that was actually something that took you 19 years mm. to, bring, <laughs> to bring to the public. Can mm. you discuss that? Why you were so passionate about that story um, and, and why you kept fighting to, to get it onto the big screen? Okay, well, it had a lot to do with my personal family and education. Uh, I went to Howard University, and every time I would go back after graduating, I would always go into the bookstore, because I just wanted to see what the young people are reading. And I was there browsing through, and I found this book, Amistad, and it was a collection of essays of, you know, black philosophers, academicians, you know, uh, people of scholarly note. And I said, why is this called Amistad? So then I flipped by the time I bought the book and was on the plane reading it on the plane ride, I read the introduction and there was one page that told the whole story of the Amistad incident. And I had never heard of it before. And I was a great student of history. I loved history, but that wasn't taught in my class in high school or college, that there was this revolt that landed the African captives before the United States Supreme Court had two presidents arguing, battling, and that they were freed and sent back home? How did we miss this story? Mm -hmm. I was just weeping on the plane. And then all the men in my family, my elders, they're all buried in the veterans cemetery. They were all in the armed services from Korea to Vietnam, they were all 
soldiers of some kind. And I said, you know, we need Singbe. That's his real name. They say Singke, but his name is Singbe Pie. We need this icon. And the movies would do it a lot quicker than the books. Mm-hmm. We need that to be on a big screen. Well, I was everybody's little darling dancing Debbie. I could get in anybody's office. Everybody loved Debbie dancing on the Oscar. Blah, blah, blah. So I'd go into these meetings, child, and they were like, huh? I'm sorry. I just, they just couldn't connect. They said, well, is there any dancing in it? <laughs> oh, my God. And it was really interesting to me because I've been, I studied the classics in college. I have a classics minor. I translated Homer and Aeschylus and Euripides and They didn't look at me that way. That part of me was over their head, that I could come in and be so articulate about something so dynamic and so historical and so relevant to all of America. And um, they waved me on, and I just couldn't get it done. It was very frustrating. It was very difficult. and it made me very angry. And then I realized anger doesn't really win out. Persistence and commitment wins out. And Steven Spielberg's son and my son were in the same class. And I didn't really know him. Of course, I admired his work. And we met over my yellow grits at a <laughs> breakfast at, at a UES. Child, those yellow grits would work every time. <laughs> so I didn't say it to him because I knew that wasn't the right thing. But then I met with his executives, Lori Parks is who I met with. She loved the story and she said, well, come in. She said, well, you can only get 10 minutes with Stephen. He doesn't take meetings, which was true. He doesn't like taking meetings. So I went in there. And I was so prepared, I could tell him, he asked so many questions and I could answer everything because I had lived and breathed this for so long. And an hour and a half later, they were dragging him out of the room that he was so late for all of his meetings and he didn't care because I knew then we were gonna make that movie. So that was a testament of what happened then and what was happening now because even as we came together, there were people that were not happy about it. They weren't happy that I was working with Stephen. You know, there were black people that were jealous. There were, you know, white people that were wondering why she, you know, I, I never forget when we had the, uh, the big, you know, meetings with all the press and a man saying, said to me, why do you have to come to him to tell your people's story? I said, he is my people. Nahel. <laughs> <laughs> So that was, Amistad was, ooh, it was like giving birth for 19 years. It was like being in labor and delivery. It was painful, but it was the joy of getting it done and the joy of actually going to Africa where there aren't many movie theaters in so many places and actually screening the movie for hundreds and hundreds of African people who lit up seeing this story told, who laughed at things that I never knew were funny and who wept 
at the site of that middle passage that we created. Um, it's on film, mm -hmm. so it exists. And then Stephen um, actually partnered with UPS to, we send it to every college in America, has a copy of Amistad in their library. Wow. So, so that was a... It was a lot of things. Very good, yeah. You know, it sounds like a lot, um, you, you talk often about perseverance and, you know, just sticking with it. And that, yeah. 19 years is a great example of sticking. It's like marriage, Jack. <laughs> like marriage. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, you know, you, you have also talked about um, in past interviews, um, I have a quote from you, it's tough being a female director in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, you're sometimes the only woman in the room mm -hmm. or often the only minority. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think a lot of the young people that you work with perhaps or that are in LA schools have, you know, when they're thinking big, these challenges will inevitably face them as well. Well, having talked about my background growing up in Texas and all that I went through as a kid, I didn't have any fear. Mm -hmm. And that was really my greatest asset next to my creativity, was not being afraid. Not being afraid. It also became uh, somewhat of a problem because I always spoke my mind, and still do. <coughs> and sometimes that wasn't appreciated. Sometimes they wanted somebody that would just sit there and just say, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't who I <laughs> was grown to be. So... Being a woman, um, I remember the first day I went to work as a director and I was just, just toiling over what I was going to wear because I wanted to say, how will, I want to make sure the men listen to me, that they respect me. And, you know, maybe I should dress, you know, kind of hard, you know, like <laughs> coming in, like, you know, hey, you know what? <laughs> but that's not who I am. Then I said, well, maybe I should just get sexy, honey. Those titties out, you know. <laughs> so I ended up wearing some overalls, pink overalls, lace socks, and wore my perfume. And the greatest asset was I did my homework. I knew what wall was wild. I knew exactly how, many, how I was going to cut this. I didn't overshoot. I didn't have to shoot every angle because I knew this was a two-shot, the whole thing. Okay, that's it. You really? Yeah, come on. Come on, let's go. The crew loved me. It was amazing. They were all cowboys then. At the end of the, every, every day, they went to the back of the truck. It was like a bar. You know, they don't let you do that now on the lot. But honey, then, child, they had anything you wanted to order. They, mm. <laughs> and I earned their respect, which is the way you should do it. I earned their respect because I was creative and I was prepared and I knew what I wanted, and I was clear with my actors. And the DP was so challenged by me because I had the blackest girl and the whitest boy dancing together. He says, Debbie, you're gonna have to change that. I can't light him. I said, Bill, you gotta figure it out. <laughs> he was one of those old jacks that had been the camera operator on those great MGM musical films that I grew up watching as a kid. He was actually the camera guy. I can't light him. I can't light him. I said, Bill. Well, he figured it out. And it was like week after week, he said, that girl, that little, mm, that little upstart. You know, I was like the upstart, you know. But it was just my creativity. And sometimes I think 
not knowing everything is a good thing because you're not trying to say what lens. You're just saying, this is the shot. I want a shot that starts on her eyeball, pulls back into infinity. What is that lens? That's your job. That's the shot. So creativity was always my greatest asset. So for women, and it's still, I mean, we just had a meeting at the DGA with the women directors, and there was a lot of fussing about not, you know, the numbers, the percentages are going down. I'm like, guys, you know, we didn't get the votes sitting up here complaining. Y'all, we got to get out there and start a movement. It's not just talking. We have to get out there and hire other women. Women have to hire other women. You know, it has to be like that, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I train young people that follow me or I teach them. You have to know, you have to have your skills set. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to know what you're doing. Because you're going to come up, I mean, I remember directing this particular show, and they said the DP was like Godzilla, honey. Don't, ooh, child, they said he's horrible. Ah, he was like a little teddy bear. Because when I went in there, I had energy. I knew what I wanted. I wasn't messing around. I let him add something to some of my shots. But I was very creative and also insistent that I want to shoot it this way. Let's try it this way. Okay, yeah, let's do it. It's different. Let's do it. Um, so being prepared, doing your homework mm-hmm. is so important when you're directing because you're mastering a ship of people, not just the crew. It's, you know, the costuming, the, not just the lighting, the actors. I remember going on Grey's Anatomy in the beginning when I first started doing that show and they were like, ooh, Debbie, you're going to have your hands full. You're da, 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 da. Child Patrick Dempsey came in there talking about fame. He was singing and dancing. And I'm like, oh my God. I said, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Um, But people want direction. I find, when I was directing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and I had James Earl Jones, every day, Debbie, what can you tell me? me He wanted his notes. He wanted his notes. And I had notes for him. And it it was fantastic to be able to work with a man of his stature and his ability and his talent and his legendary, all of that. But in the room, I'm the director, he's the actor. All of that goes away. You know, you can't rest on your laurels about anything you've done. You can't be afraid to fail. Try stuff. You know, okay, didn't work out. All right, we'll try it again next time. You have to um, commit Mm -hmm. because you have to believe in yourself as an artist. You know, there's a lot of people that are kind of mechanics, but it's art. You know, I always teach my young people, and I'm in the dance world, I make them study the Impressionists. It's important to me because they need to know that the Impressionist painters were like heretics in their time. You cannot buy a Monet or Degas right now. You can't afford it. You know, some of them died in obscurity, but they were some of the greatest artists, and they committed, and they stayed the course. You have to stay the course. That's what I teach them. You, you, you've also talked about um, young people developing their passions early, which is also why arts education, yeah. I know, is something that you believe in so much. You recently gave a graduation speech at Emerson College. Mm. And so you said in that speech, who are you when you, look in, when you look at that mirror? Who is looking back? What makes you laugh? What makes you cry? What makes you mad? What makes you quiet? What makes you still? 
what is the blood memory that infuses the spirit and the sense of self in each one of you? Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you could answer that question for yourself <laughs> to us before we take when questions. When I look in the mirror, <laughs> I see my sister, I see my mother, I see my grandmother who birthed 10 children. Mm. I see Lena Horne, I see Catherine Dunham. I see Cleopatra. <laughs> I see God because ancient society, God was a woman. There is no, that's true. If you go back into the ancient societies, God was considered a woman. Women were an, were an, were an enigma. They didn't understand even how we gave birth. We were like magical creatures. You know, and, and still now when they go and they uncover pyramids and stuff, they want to say it's the mother, that she was the queen, honey. <laughs> so I see ancestry that goes way back, way back. Through all of that, my mother, Felicia, my grandmother, Goldie Jean, you know, looking at Lena Horne and Catherine and looking at all of these women who are in a way a reflection of who I am today. And um, I care. I care a lot about young people having access. I care a lot about young people being educated, and I care a lot about young people being nurtured. I get very angry, really angry, when I see those brick walls that seem to be coming back, mm -hmm. those hurdles. When I, when I look at the prison system and look at this modern slavery, that's going on right now. I mean, you all need mm -hmm. to look at it. It's, I mean, we're sending young boys away for 10, 20 years for a bag of pot. Mm -hmm. And then you have people over here with driving Mercedes that are stealing millions of dollars walking around. Mm -hmm. I get upset when I look at the planet, why is there even any argument about environmental concerns? What are we talking about? Why in the hell are we arguing about guns on the street? What is wrong? If we have to get a license to drive a car, what's wrong with having a license to carry a gun? What is that? What are we talking about? We look so ridiculous to the rest of the world. We are the youngest, math, the youngest great power. When you go and you go to... You go to India and go to China, child, we don't have anything because we haven't looked into our own Native American culture. We have not uplifted the Native American, true American culture here. We don't even understand it. We have not acknowledged the greatness of the pyramids down in Mexico. We look at the ones in Egypt, but we're not looking at who we are. You know, California is Mexico. Why is this illegal to have Spanish as a second language? in the public schools. What are we doing? How is this possible? Who is ma who's making this, who's voting? We need to come out. We gotta come out. This is making us ridiculous. How will 
America maintain global leadership. We won't is the answer. We will not. That's what I see. We have got to check ourselves quickly. We don't have a lot of time. We don't. The internet is, whoo, it's going back, whoo. We don't have much time to get it straight. In America, we should be speaking three and four languages. You go to Italy, they're speaking Italian, German, French, and English. In China, they're speaking English, Chinese, Mandarin, Cantonese, and French. And we're speaking what, English? <laughs> we're not global. How is that? That is insane to me. And I just, I don't know, child. Don't let me start, child. <laughs> I think I might we got need, you started. <laughs> I need some tequila in this bottle, honey. <laughs> well, I know there's, I know there's definitely has to be many questions from the audience. So okay. I want to open it up and give give people a chance to ask anything. Uh, what I'm, I want to know is, is in the LA Unified School District, who is that person who you could find in the parking lot to shake up? Who's who? Who is this, the council person? Who is the you know, I don't, I don't think the mayor, I mean, but, or in the, in the administration of the district, who is the one who says, I believe in the arts, I want the arts, and I'm pushing for the arts, and not just one school that's the school of the arts, but who are these people? What are the names? Who are the organizations who you say we sh- can get behind? It's the school board has to, we have to, you have to go to those meetings downtown. I went down there when they made that announcement about arts coming out of K, you know, through sixth grade. And those women, most of them were Latina, most of them. And when I got there, all of a sudden the news cameras came up and this woman was mad at me. Telling me I have been here since five in the morning. You're not going first. I'm like, I'm sorry, baby. I'm here to help you. I'm not fighting with you. We have to go downtown. We have to go and be in the meetings and we have to speak. And we have to get out and knock on doors. This has to be grassroots. We can't let it happen. We have to talk about it. You know, we talk about things for a little while, then it goes away. You know, Newtown happened. We can't let that go away. We have to remember that every day because we don't know when it's going to happen again. It's crazy like that. We have to form a committee. Where did you go? Okay. We have to form a committee. We have a new mayor now. Garcetti is very pro-arts, and I supported him, I believed him, and I think maybe he may have some influence, but we have people that we elected that we have to call them out. So we need to have a little committee of people and get a big group. And we, I really thought we ought to have a protest and just block up the 10 freeway and have a day. <laughs> I, I'm serious. We should have a protest and make it positive, not angry. Yay, we're for the arts. Come on, get out of your car. Yeah. Come on, baby, let's dance. Make it a happy thing. And the police won't beat us. They'll be so busy laughing and adoring us, but we will make a statement. We need something to happen in L.A. because a lot that happens here reverberates around the world. They're looking at us. We have the biggest movie stars come. It's all Hollywood. And what are we doing to our kids? Duh. Okay, I'm sorry. Could you share with the audience what your mom 
taught you guys, you ladies, that, that created such a talent so that others can do the same? My mother, Vivian Ayers, we're going to be celebrating her 90th birthday in July. And um, she doesn't really like that because she says, don't be telling my age, I'm, not, I'm still in the game. I'm like, Mama, come down here. My mother started out as a writer and she became a composer. Uh, no, first she was a classical pianist. And uh, she was discovered by Will Marion Cook, who wanted to take her to Europe and be his protege. But her father thought that was something nasty. He didn't know what protege. <laughs> so, she came up at a time where it was not thought of women doing these things. When she married my father, who was a great dentist, he was jealous of her writing. Her first book of poetry was Pulitzer Prize nominated, Spice of Dawns in Texas, but she was like, they treated mom, and she was so beautiful. You know, Dorothy Dandridge looks and could make any dress, make the best fried apple pie. She was the true Renaissance woman. And writing Hawk, uh, uh, this amazing allegory when man transcends into the sun. They used her poetry at NASA because what she wrote sounded like what the astronauts were saying and thinking, coming, going out into space. That's who my mother is. So in raising these little underlings who were her biggest helpers, we were sitting up putting her books together and mama tricked us. She did. When there were these signs that said white on, oh no, that's a club, but you know what? You don't want to be in that club. We're going to go someplace where there's a better club. Or she would tell us that we were the most talented on the planet and that we were children of the universe, not a little city called Houston, Texas, that the world belonged to us and the stars. She made us believe that we had power as little kids. She made us believe. I think she told each one of us individually that we were the best. She told Felicia, she told me, she told Tex. He's a musician, Felicia's who, she, you know, Felicia's directing, acting, first black woman to win a Tony Award. Uh, child, we thought that, uh, didn't Ruby win that? We didn't even know. <laughs> and mama tricked us. She gave us that positive thing. But now she was tough, too. I mean, she would make us get up in the middle of the night if we left dishes. We had to get up and clean up, honey. <laughs> but she pushed us into worlds that were not always familiar and comfortable. I remember everybody was going to the circus and she took me to go and see this East Indian ballet with Ravi Shankar and all. I said, I wanna go to the circus. No, you've got to go here, Deborah. you've got to, I don't wanna go, I don't wanna go. Everybody, I got there and oh my God, I had never seen anything like it. But she didn't try to be my best friend the whole time. She was my mother. So she kicked my ass when she needed to. She really kicked my ass. She still kicks my ass. I was on the Tonight Show one time. She said, what the hell were you wearing? There was, she said, she said, there was no sex appeal in that. You didn't even show a shoulder blade. What the hell? But she also now has me reading the 10 volume historical 
biography of Lincoln, written by his assistants. Ten volumes. It's amazing. My mother can explain the Mayan calendar. That, her mind. So she continues to make us know that we haven't gotten there yet. There's an award here and an award there. Nuh-uh. You know, real success, this is a journey in life. It's not, you know, you get a little cash here, you made money here, oh, you, you got this Emmy Award, you got, oh, you got the Golden Globe. No. When I came back from North Carolina, when they didn't accept me, and they used me to demonstrate for all those kids and I was the hope for my whole community. It was so heartbreaking for me to say that they weren't going to take me. My dad didn't believe it. And I came home in tears, and Mama met me at the airport, and she said, Deborah, you failed. I'm like, Mom, the man didn't want me. They didn't want any more black kids. I know that. She said, you failed. I said, but Mama, she said, you failed. She wept and said to me, I failed. She said it to me ten times. It felt so cruel and so heartless. It was so great because she was not letting me fall into self-pity and letting me fall into being a victim. She was telling me, if you want to be a dancer, damn it, get out there and keep dancing. Pull yourself together. That's one person. That doesn't mean anything. Come on. She was tough. So she was wild and, you know, they thought she was kind of like a, Bohemian, you know, because she had Indian friends and Jewish friends. I remember we went to our first Hanukkah. I wanted to be in that chair. I said, ooh. She exposed us to many cultures and many religions. And it's given us choices in life. This year, 2013, marks the 50th anniversary of some of the most catalytic things in the civil rights movement from the March on Washington, uh, the Birmingham children being murdered, as well as um, um, the Baldwin-Kennedy meeting and other things. If Martin Luther King was alive today in your most artistic, creative way, what would he say about arts and culture today on how we should make this movement work? He was the great, great galvanizer of people. Martin could speak and millions would come. He would say, yes, Debbie, let's go to the 10 freeway. Let's do it. <laughs> he would like that idea. We could do it. Okay. All right. <laughs> do children, students you work with today, do they think of success as along the lines of Whitney Houston or Michael Jackson, or because of the internet and YouTube and so many people out there, plus TMZ and people, you know, every, and people with cell phones that there's no privacy, have they lowered their expectation of, of how successful they can be? Or, and will we see people of that level ascend to that level, or is the competition in YouTube keeping bringing people up or, you know, you know what I mean? Lower, keeping an more even play field. And also, did Richard die in Grey's Anatomy? I love that show. Oh, that's four <laughs> different questions. Okay. <laughs> you know, I can't speak about kids everywhere. I can speak about kids that I'm working with. They're all doing YouTube, Instagram. I mean, it's 
so it's happening so quickly parents can't even know what they're doing I, I it's hard to be but they're living in a different time in a different age and that is the language of today that is the language of right now the kids that I'm trying to raise understand that there has to be more there has to be more, which is what I was talking about. It has to be more beyond just yourself. You know, we're looking at Justin Bieber and Chris Brown. We're looking at them. I mean, they're iconic, but Justin's what speeding through with his Ferrari right now. I mean, we love him. We think he's talented, but where's what's going on? Where are his parents? Somebody better snatch him quickly. Chris Brown, one of the most talented. I'm telling you, this young man is gifted. He has made a terrible mistake, that whole situation. Will he ever live it down because of the Internet? Will he ever be able to recover from that? That's a real question. They're looking at that. They're looking. When Michael Jackson died, something died for every one of them. He is the icon still. I don't care what anybody has to say. They can say whatever they can come out the woodwork with their little ghost stories from the past, whatever that is. As a talent, he's always going to be the one for them. You can't become Michael Jackson today. The record industry has changed. But the Internet can put you out there really quickly. But the question is, how long will you last? That's the question that I pose to my young people. How long will you last? You can go out here and, you know, do, I mean, what... Mm. How, where have we come as a society where you're asking about children, but where have we come as a society where we have these entertainment shows that are giving time to women that do sex tapes? What has happened that that's something that is being discussed at seven o'clock on these, you know, these popular shows? Her sex tape was revealed, and then she's crying like we should care. <laughs> Lock that bitch up. Lock her up. <laughs> Shh, I'm sorry. So you're asking a question that's very complex because young people today are exposed to a lot of horrible things. They can't even help it. You click on, you can click on something about the White House, and then somebody naked might show up. <laughs> you, you don't even control that. So we can't be upset about them going on YouTube, all the things that they do. What we can do is just try to get hands-on, grassroots, at home. And that's not always possible, especially for our kids that are economically deprived because their parents are working two and three jobs, and sometimes they're not even home because they're working. They're mothers that are working two and three jobs to just pay the bills and keep food on the table. I think that the standard of fame got lowered with, I'm sorry, you've become famous on a reality show if you eat a frog. <laughs> Is that talent? If you lose weight, you become famous because you lost weight? That, that is a fact. You lose weight in America and you become famous. And you might get a, a line of jewelry and some spanks. <laughs> we have kind of 
we're falling into an abyss in a way. And I'm not one that's a prude. I believe in freedom of expression, but there is a moral spine in America that is getting weaker daily. And it doesn't just happen with kids. It happens before the kids. It happens on television every day. The things that are discussed, the things that are talked about. I will never forget, you know, when my son was sitting there and he's a little kid and somebody comes on the news and, and talking about President Clinton and that girl and saying something about a blowjob. And he says, Mommy, what is that? I'm like, oh. <laughs> 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 it's just a special kiss. It's just a special kiss. <laughs> What was I supposed to say? What can I say? Or when kids, my kids, my kids were playing with kids that, that had AIDS. They were, we were neighbors with a family that had kids that had AIDS. How can I not tell them the truth about what that is at five years old? They have to understand. No, you can't touch little, little so-and-so's blood. If he, if he, you can play with him, but if he bleeds... In the playground, you come run and get mommy. Well, why mommy? Well, there's this thing, well, what is that? You have to tell them. You can't lie. There's too much of that couching. And here in America, we raise children too long to be children. And everywhere in the world, when I went to Mexico, when my mom took us there, I remember we got off in the Greyhound bus at a bus stop to get some chips. And there was a kid, he couldn't have been more than five, with a stick herding cattle across the freeway by himself. It was his job. <laughs> We've got to start to get them ready for adulthood sooner now. We can't keep them children as long as what it used to be. You know, it's not ha Ozzie and Harriet anymore. Dennis the Menace. It's, some, it's Menace to Society now. <laughs> it is. And they have to know when they walk out the door, what they're dealing with, how to protect themselves. So the standard of fame has changed a lot because of what happens in the media and in the press. And yes, a lot of children are in competitions, but they don't understand they won't stay the course if they don't have some real spine and some real skill and developed artistry underneath their belts. And that's what I'm trying to teach them, but I can't say that children everywhere know that. wonder if you could talk about um, the balance between, as an artist, um, remaining uh, commercially viable and also maintaining your integrity, especially if you're interested in telling real stories, if you're interested in telling so stories that um, speak to social justice. How have you been able to um, navigate that as an artist, um, especially in the entertainment industry? That's a difficult question. I mean, you can look at me, but you can just also ask that generally because actors go up and they audition and they get cast and you can't say, well, I don't like this scene. You can't walk in and say, I want to change that. You know, on Fame, um, we had writers, I had a lot to do with the stories because of the dancing, and I would create whatever it was. But I remember the day when they wrote an episode where uh, Sherwood and Lydia Grant changed places, and I was teaching the English class, and she was teaching the dance class, and they had written there um, that a child was going to correct my spelling, and I said, absolutely not. No. 
I will not play that scene. I will not for one second be uneducated and, and not be able to spell no. Hmm. And it was something that they weren't thinking how that little thing could create, reverberate a lot of ideas with people watching that, that Ms. Grant can't spell. No, honey, that ain't gonna happen. Uh-uh. <laughs> but you don't always have that ability. Sometimes you get a part and you have to play that role because you have to work. Um, for me, I've had the outlet of theater. I've been able to create my own ideas, like freeze frame. I'm just doing it. I never even know half the time I'm going to pay for anything. I just do it. And then something happens. I don't know. I think I got some angels running around somewhere. I don't know. But you have to say no to something if you are offended by it. You just have to say no. I mean, I remember when I was doing... Um, I was doing Richard Pryor's movie, Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling. And we actually had a love scene. And I certainly had never been naked in public or on screen. And I remember I came up to Richard and I said, um, well, look, I have the pasties and the G-string or I have a little body stocking. Which would you prefer that I wear? He said, you're going to wear something? I said, oh, yeah, you can wear something, too. I got you a jock set. <laughs> <laughs> he just laughed. It, I wore the pages. I did. I said, honey, mm-mm. Um, but when I had the scene where I was supposed to snort cocaine, something I've never done, I said, Richard, you know, I don't know how to do this. So you're going to have to show me what, what that is. And you know what? He looked at me, and there was something... In his eyes, there was a sweetness about this whole moment between us. And then the next moment I looked up and he just cut it from the, he cut it out. Because he realized he didn't want me to do it. That I had never done it. He didn't want me to do it. He didn't want to see me do it. Even though I was trying to figure out how to do it. I mean, I guess my asking him made him know I was nervous about doing it. But he took it out. If you say something, you got to speak up. If you're against something, just don't do it. Just don't do it. I, the only job I was ever fired from was because I wouldn't take my clothes off. And uh, they had one line in the play about bosoms in flight, and I didn't even have any breasts then. I, Child, you couldn't even see them, honey, please. <laughs> and um, the director was like, well, you have to. I said, my daddy has to come see this. If I can't do this in front of my dad, no, I'm not taking no. And so I was fired, and I was fine, and the play was a horrible success. It was not. <laughs> no, it really did very badly, and I was really happy. Um, <laughs> but you have to make choices, and sometimes it's not easy, you know, because you may have to. During Amistad, we needed you to be naked because you were portraying the Africans on that boat. It was a very difficult thing because all of those men, they were real African people, every last one of them. And most of them are Muslim, most of them were, and to be naked is not something they know. And I had to talk them into it. I said, we cannot do, you have to portray, we have to tell the story, you have to.
And they did. They trusted that it was done with the integrity. That's what it was. Even though the secretaries were down there trying to peep. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, with the state of the music industry now, as a musician and yourself as well, where do you see us going in the next maybe three years, if that much? But where is the industry going to go? Because we're no longer going to be able to support ourselves with the, with the outside of touring. <laughs> the music industry is really turned into something that is almost like give away the music and then so you can do the concert because everyone is downloading. No one buys the whole album, which is why you can't even become Michael Jackson today because I'm guilty of it too. We go and pick the song that we want. We don't get the whole album. And it's back to the single. You know, when I was a kid, it was that um, 45. It's back to that, but it's on iTunes. And you go like this and there it is. Um, so it's very interesting question because there's so many talented people that want to be in the music business and music industry as they're all kind of collapsing. A lot of these big companies and great artists, their companies are kind of collapsing. Um, they're going into, you know, other businesses. Uh, Jimmy Iovine, who's one of the biggest managers, I, I think um, his biggest business is the, the head. Is it Jimmy Iovine that's doing oh, the... Yeah. Dre's the beat, right. More money in the headphones than in the music and the artists. It's all over the world. So it's a tough question. It's a tough question because young people want to be able to go into that world and realize some measure of success. Well, they'll have to understand that the measure of success is going to be back on the road again. That's where it is. Without the education for people to have instruments and without people to purchase those things, that uh, genre of what we know as music is uh, already a dinosaur. Well, right? yeah. I mean, when I was in school, I didn't have to buy the instrument. I played bass. This was why the, the music and the dance, I was able to do so well in the Oscars because I understood music and how to you know, change it and make it like this and make it like that. Young people today, they have to buy the instruments or they have to come at 5.30 in the morning or stay late. It's not internal to the school hours, a lot of places. We do need to put back those school, the music back in the school because what we're developing here is not just people in the music industry, we're developing humanity. That's the part that's the most important part. We're developing humanity because when young people train in music and art and theater and all these wonderful things, they are reflecting on the beauty and how they're expressing what's going on, even if it's something dark or whatever, but there is a, a beauty to it. And there's a humanity and a compassion to that artistry. And so it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I met Condoleezza Rice, whose work, good or bad, however you see it, she was a woman of great power like no other while she was doing what she was doing. And when I had dinner with her, she expressed to me that the only moment of real relaxation and private joy was when she could play with her quartet, when she could play her, her instrument. And that was only on Sundays unless there was some you know, emergency, and then she'd have to be at the White House. It was the only joy 
that she had. And it's a way of life. I was down, I was in Washington addressing a committee, a Senate committee about arts, and they were, you know, talking about taking it out. And I said, well, why don't we strip all the art out of your life and your, uh, your office? Let's take the art off the wall. Let's take the rug off the floor. Turn off the TV. Turn off the radio. No, you can't do any of that. What is the quality of your life without art, the paintings, the music, all of that? It is terrible. It is an abyss. And it's developing the humanity. That's why art in school is so important. Music and dance and visual arts and painting and film now. I mean, we should be teaching kids about electronic music in all schools. When you go to a public school, they're lucky if they have two or three computers in the library. You go to a private school, they'll have 20 in the kindergarten class. That's the truth. And this is the language of the future. So we've got to balance this equation. The arts has got to be on the same plane as the sciences. Keith Black, who is one of the greatest neurosurgeons of our time, is one of the most creative human beings I've ever had the pleasure to speak with. It is his creativity, along with his understanding of science and his technology, that makes him an innovator. Creativity is half of innovation. Creativity is not going to happen if we don't allow those dots to connect. America will not stand as the global leader of this world if we don't get it right in the classroom with our kids. They need arts education. America is the whole Arab Spring with the internet. That happened from America. We are the groundswell for so, we're the hope for people all over the world. And we have to give that back to our kids. So yes, we need that music, those Violin and music lessons and dance classes and art, all of that. And we've got to come up with something. We've got to take the 10 freeway. I'm sorry. We've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs>